The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted today to welcome my guest, Mr. Andrew Scrivani. He is a photographer, director, and producer. He contributes regularly to the New York Times food section and has shot numerous beautiful food photographs for an assortment of cookbooks and magazines. In addition, he is an internationally recognized workshop instructor and columnist on the subject of visuals, which is so important in food. He has an impressive website where you can see some of his beautiful food photography and some of his specific work that he's done. For example, I was very interested in his bumblebee tuna campaign, which we will talk about. And you just have to click on tear sheets to find that. So I'm going to give our listeners the website now. I will post it along with this program and I will have it at the end. It's www.andrewscrivani.com. Welcome, Mr. Scrivani. It's great to have you with me. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I received a copy of your book, thanks to your publicist, and I dove in and fell in love. There's nothing like a beautiful visual of food, and you describe it so beautifully. I think it relates to your Italian background and the emotion that is tied to food and eating in your specific culture. But I wonder, can you tell me how you became involved in food photography? Well, sure. It's almost a happy accident. I happened to be in a bit of a transition in my life and looking for a little bit of a change in the direction of what I was doing for a living. I had been a teacher and a coach for a very long time, and I had been somewhat of an amateur photographer up to that point. I had learned photography in college, but not my college. I happened to go to school across the street from the School of Visual Arts where my best friend went to school and was studying photography. So I got a free education from one of the most expensive art schools in New York City. And then while I was looking for this sort of transition, I started to reach out to all my friends who were connected to him who had connections in the photography world. And I ended up getting a couple of smaller assignments here and there. And then an assignment popped up for the New York Times in Staten Island, where I'm from. And it happened to be in an ice cream parlor. And it was one I was familiar with. So I went to this ice cream parlor, which was called Eggers, which still exists, and I got an opportunity to shoot for the food section of the New York Times as a relatively rookie photographer. And it happened to be well-received, and then I got a couple of other smaller assignments out in the field, photograph a restaurant, go photograph the outside of this place, go take pictures in the grocery store, like just newsy kind of stuff. And the editor and I became friends, and she knew that I knew how to cook. So from there, there was not a real tradition at the times of recipe photography. So they didn't have an in-house recipe photographer or somebody who was executing food photography on a studio level. So I did a couple of assignments where I cooked the food and photographed it. And that impressed Sam Sifton, who was the then and now editor of the New York Times food section, 
and he just told the photo editor, just keep hiring that guy. And that kind of is how it got started, and it, it just kind of snowballed from there, and I, and I built my career around being a studio food photographer. Wow, what a great story. I love stories with a little bit of serendipity in them. And the book that we are talking about, if I failed to mention it earlier, is titled That Photo Makes Me Hungry, Photographing Food for Fun and Profit. And in the promo, it says something that I want to just emphasize as being absolutely true. It says it's an essential addition to anyone interested in food photography, whether you're a professional or whether you are taking photographs for Facebook or Instagram, all of the social media outlets up there. This is really an essential guide. And it doesn't surprise me that you were a teacher first, because you do indeed guide the reader through technical, artistic, and my favorite, the emotional aspects of food photography, which is what makes it so salient. You were asked about what makes your photographs unique. And I knew this when I looked at them. And then I read your answer that you were inspired by the great masters and how you have a lot of contrast in your food photography. Is it just this kind of emotional nature that that kind of contrast brings? Like, how did you find that niche? Well, it's interesting is that I felt that the food photography I was looking at in major magazines and whatever was out there at the time, because, you know, we're talking pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook, it was early internet. What we were getting was from magazines mostly, and it all seemed very feminized, number one, for me. It seemed very light and bright and uh, overlit. And the food didn't look particularly romantic. And my memories, of course, I wasn't trained as a food photographer, but I did spend a lot of time at the Met, was looking at things like Vermeer and still life of a bowl of fruit. And this stuck with me, uh, the idea that this romantic approach to photographing or painting food was something I wanted to try to recreate. And a lot of it was technologically driven because I was shooting in daylight with digital cameras and shooting at a shallow depth of field to try to get as much light onto the sensor as possible. You know, a lot of these things were sort of driven by the technology of the time and my aesthetic and wanting it to be a little bit more romantic, a little bit more evocative and look really delicious. And I got comfortable being really close to the food and I gradually backed away and incorporated more of the scene. But the still life of the bowl of fruit or the big hunter's table full of romantic-looking harvest was something that always stuck with me. So I went through my career building a technical arsenal to try to figure out how to make that work. Absolutely. The Dutch masters would be very happy with your work. <laughs> That's really nice to hear. Well, I have to go back to the introduction of your book. You talk about your Italian great-grandmother, Sadie, and how much time you spent in the kitchen, how much in the Italian culture food, of course, is celebrated and revered, actually. And you write how your photographs celebrate food to this day and that your great-grandmother, Sadie, is your muse. Yes. Growing up, we, like a lot of Italian families at the time, my parents had my brother and I when they were young. So they were younger people starting their lives. They had a mother-daughter attached home with my grandparents who were, of course, housing my great-grandmother, who was a widow at that time. And it was a very big nuclear family living in one space. And she 
only really knew how to relate to children one way, and that was to feed us and incorporate us into what she was doing in her life, which was in the garden and in the kitchen and at the dinner table. And this stuff kind of stuck with me. And it wasn't just the food, but it was the the ritual of being part of it and the smells and the gatherings and the family. And it was something that was ingrained in me and, and something I wanted to learn about. And then as I got older, I saw that my mother had become much more health conscious and she wasn't cooking like my grandmother anymore or my great-grandmother. And I wanted to start to recreate her dishes myself. Mm. So when I say she's my muse, I mean, she's the one who turned me on to the idea of the experience of food culture and inspired me to recreate the things that she made when I was a kid. And of course, then what I wanted to do is photograph it because by that time I was already experiencing life through the camera. And then I was also recreating her dishes in my kitchen and writing about them on my blog at the time, which uh, is now defunct. But uh, I wrote a blog for many years and I I wrote many entries about life with her. Mm, That's beautiful. Interestingly, I think that if we go back to the cultural foods that we enjoyed with our grandmothers, I think that's actually a ticket to health and moving away from so many of the highly processed foods that really don't deliver the true nourishment that you experienced at your great-grandmother's hand. I agree. I mean, I agree fully. I've been an athlete my entire life. When I was a teacher, I taught health ed for part of my career. So it was something that was very important to me to understand nutrition. I ate vegetarian for about 10 years in my 20s. And I understood what the garbage in, garbage out mentality of eating is like you put good stuff in and you're going you're gonna to feel better, you're going to perform better, you're going to have a lot more energy and a lot more uh, longevity. And I also saw people in my family, you know, who suffered from health problems because of the way they ate. So uh, it was something that is important uh, in my life in that regard as well. Well, I think as a food photographer, you are actually a partner in health promotion Because when you have beautiful images of food that is truly nourishing, I think it makes people, like your book said, you know, this photograph is making me hungry. I want to make this recipe. And so consider yourself a partner in the healthcare team. I think that's a good way to look at at art. I want to talk about something that I used to look at childhood obesity way back in my years as a dietitian, and it just seemed like... We were always telling kids, eat more fruits and vegetables, get more exercise. But there was this other hand in the picture influencing what kids were eating, and that was the fast food industry and how successful they were in really tricking kids into buying foods that weren't going to help them be well. And there was a wonderful video that was created by Consumer Reports, and it showed how food photographs are manipulated. And so when I look at food photographs, I wonder, is that real food? How are they tricking me? Because this particular video looked at how a fast food burger was assembled with pins and glue and all kinds of goop that you wouldn't see. But my impression from your book and from your writing is that you're photographing real food. There's very little manipulation from external artificial sources. Am I correct? You are. One of the things that I do, and I, I, th- I don't think this is unique to me, I think it is the new movement in food photography, is to shoot real food and to try to maintain and preserve the food as best as you can so that it is still edible. 
most of the food that I've photographed in my career has either been eaten right there on set or boxed up and given away. It's something that the food should be revered. I feel that we as an industry, and I've actually spoken about this, I've done some workshops with some chefs who do a lot of repurposing of ingredients to talk about how we cannot abide by the amount of waste that's in our industry, both Mm. in restaurants and in photography. And it's very sad when you do have to sometimes Some food perishes in the creation of the art, but when you go at it with the intention of trying to make it as edible as possible when it comes off that set, I think you do a service both to your viewer, but also to the food itself. Wow. I never even considered the waste that was involved in food photography. So you can also add the word sustainable to what you're doing if you're at least being aware and trying to reduce that food waste. It's really an important factor, and I am very grateful to you for paying attention to that. If you look at the broad field of food photography, how much would you say is still having some artificial influence versus what you're doing, creating real food and making it look great? I would say we're probably 75% what I do, and 25% is still a bit manipulative. I do think that there are times when we will prop food a certain way or use something. I try to use edible additions to things that I need to make the picture work. But in terms of using anything not edible, that doesn't go into my work. And I don't put things that I find disgusting to put on food in you know, glue and plastic and these things. I, I wouldn't photograph that because, first of all, it would feel dishonest, but also I don't think it would look the same. Well, that's good to know. Let me take one break as we're halfway through and remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Andrew Scrivani. He is the author of a beautiful book titled, That Photo Makes Me Hungry, Photographing Food for Fun and Profit. Because we were just talking about how do you make food look beautiful, I do want to jump in. You have a beautiful image of soup. I think just about every image in your book actually does make me want to eat it. But the soup trick was you're putting a small bowl inside a bigger bowl, which raises the ingredients in a soup up to the top, where otherwise they would sink to the bottom. Mm -hmm. This is a classic food photography styling trick in that by what we call propping the bowl, it creates a little stage and you are able to get the ingredients just breaking the surface of the liquid in a soup or a stew or something where you are afraid that everything is going to sink to the bottom of the bowl. And clearly in a food photo, that's not going to work. So that's one of those little tricks that we do that is really about how you present the food rather than manipulate the food. And it comes out very naturally, believe it or not. And it's a remarkable little tweak that makes the photo possible. Yeah. Do you want to share some other styling tricks? Well, I keep a little kit on hand and I I try to move things around very gently with like tweezers or chopsticks. I always keep some like a oil water spray around to sort of glisten things. I keep a little bit of peanut oil or something and a paintbrush around to gloss things a little bit. So I try to keep things really natural. We always hydrate the greens really well and keep them in ice water right before they go on the set. So there's all these little ways of keeping food looking fresh. And of course, you always have to go through everything 
with a fine tooth comb before it actually hits the table. I use a phrase that I say, shopping is propping, chopping is propping, all of it is propping. Everything is about how you present the food on the plate and all of it from the time you go to the market to the way it's prepared, to the way it's cut, to the way it's plated, all of it matters. And if you assemble a group of people who are all artists in their own right, whether it's a food stylist or a prop stylist or your assistants, all of these people need to understand what your aesthetic is and how you want to present the food. And they all have their own little tricks and style and how they like to do those things. But most of it is pretty organic. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. You had one of the nicest compliments somebody could have given you. And it was that they saw a picture that you had taken, didn't have your name on it, but they said, I knew it was your photograph. Yeah. This is something that has happened to me throughout my career and and it never ceases to feel good. When you've created a style and a look that is recognizable. It really does make you feel like you've created something artistic in a way that goes beyond just making the picture and having it published and that people understand your aesthetic. They look for your aesthetic and it it really is rewarding to develop and craft a style that is reproducible and recognizable. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about styling because I think everybody who has a cell phone now is taking photographs of food. In fact, you talk about, I think this this book is very appealing to such a wide audience because everybody's got a cell phone and everybody's taking photos of the food, whether they go out to a restaurant and they're reviewing it or whether they've just made a beautiful meal at home and they want to photograph it and capture it and share it on Facebook or Instagram, as you mentioned. But you have an intentional photograph where you have an artfully created mess. So you've got a few crumbs by the biscuit, and you've got a few drops of jelly that have left the knife. They're now on the cutting board. Why do you do that? I feel like when you look at food, it should be in a continuum. It's as if you are in the process of a meal or preparing a meal or eating a meal, and we just capture a second in time of that process. And I think that when you're only shooting perfect plated food, that doesn't feel like we're wearing the part of that continuum. Yeah. I feel like there's something inordinately intimate about getting in the middle of that process. And I think that's why I do it that way, because it always felt real to me to do it that way, even if we're crafting the artfully created mess. Mm-hmm. But it always feels like we're placing it in the middle of the continuum, not just at the beginning of it. Right. And you just walked into somebody's kitchen and you're having a real meal with them. Exactly. Well, that leads me to another subject in your book, which is, do we include motion into a picture? And I often wonder about the: Do I have the fork next to the plate? Do I have the spoon in the bowl? Do I have a hand holding that utensil? You have a beautiful photograph. Well, you have two comparisons on on two pages where you've got plated noodles with the chopsticks laying by them, and you have multiple bowls and multiple pairs of chopsticks. So it's it's an artistic geographic appearance or graphic art. And then you've got one where it's much more intimate. You've got the chopsticks that are lifting the noodles up. And I wonder... Is there a right way to present food to make it more inviting with that movement element? I do think that that helps. And I do think that I, uh, since I began as a photographer and have progressed as an artist and become a filmmaker, 
I realized that the, the things that we try to accomplish in filmmaking, the cinematic experience is about the changing perspective on a scene. It's a close-up. It's a wide establishing shot. It's, it's a two-shot. It's, it's a mid-range. And the combination of those shots gives you the experience of being in the room. Now, photography, obviously, a lot of times you only get the one shot. But if you understand that, the continuum of those kinds of approaches in making your photography more cinematic, that's really where I'm coming from. And that being in that graphic overhead, sometimes that's your best option, too, is that the food isn't going to present itself in a way that's going to let you get that close because it's not as attractive or it's not as dynamic. But then there are times when you can get really close and give the viewer a perspective that they wouldn't have sitting at a dining table. You're not going to see that picture when you're eating that bowl of soup. But pulling somebody in that new perspective gives you a different kind of cinematic quality to what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. And you've got such a beautiful array of examples to match that philosophy. And I'm thinking, you're probably guessing, I'm thinking of the chocolate close-up. <laughs> like, who takes that kind of close-up look at the swirls of chocolate with little bits of sea salt sprinkled on them? I mean, that was just, it's artistic, it's beautiful, and it makes us, I think, consider our food more closely, which is important for appreciation and, and that reverence for food. Yeah, I think so. And I think that finding those graphic elements in the way people present their food and take pride in it and take joy in it and showing it in a beautiful cake or the way you bring out the bowl of food. And I like to put hands in my photographs as well because of that very thing is that the hands are the connection. You know, like I always thought my grandmother's food tasted better because she cooked with her hands. Yeah. And it was whether or not that's the truth, but the reality is the hands are the connection to the creation of the food and putting them in the photos, whether holding or using a utensil or working the dough or whatever it might be, all of that is part of it and that holding the food with esteem. Yeah. It gives us a human connection that would not otherwise be there, I think. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't feel sanitized or static. Right. It feels like it's part of our lives. And, you know, food is part of all of our lives. And so th there is a universal truth to all of that. Right. Well, I would be remiss, right, if I didn't talk about light, because that's a big focus of your book. And how do we find the ideal light? And you take the time to walk through the different types of light that we might use. But you like daylight. And especially you talk about being on a farm, I believe it was in New York, maybe upstate New York. And yes. it was a it was kind of cool. But it was overcast. And it was in the afternoon. And you talk about just the lighting just made the food so beautiful. Yeah, that day, it was in Claryville, New York. And uh, we were there at the invitation of the chef who was holding sort of a pop up out in this farm. And it was just like being in a giant softbox. The, yeah. the light was beautiful and even and soft. And I shot all day long and I got just so many beautiful pictures that day without having to do any bouncing, without doing any filtering. And, and they came out of the camera looking beautiful. So they're very little post-process too. But so that, that, that beautiful soft light is something that I think a lot of people don't immediately identify as really good for food. I, I, I tell a story in the book about uh, being in Seattle for one yes. of my first food workshops. 
And everybody was like, oh, you know, you're not going to be able to shoot food here. It's always gray and it's always cloudy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You live in a giant softbox. Right. And we took the food to the windows and I showed them that you need nothing. You don't need anything. You got it. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's just about recognition and training yourself to understand the light that you have and the light that you want. And I think if you understand those two things, then you have to figure out how to navigate between those two things. Right. Such a fabulous book. That photo makes me hungry. Photographing food for fun and profit. I know I've got many, many pages of questions and comments that I want to talk to you about, but you do talk about the role of social media and how it has affected business and art and the perceptions of photography. You know, photographs are, they're everywhere. Anybody's taking a photograph today. What do you want people to know specifically about social media and food photography? Well, I think that you need to pay attention to the idea that the trends don't necessarily reflect best practices all the time. I think that we, we go through sort of fits and starts with food photography, but it's so ubiquitous. And I think that mistaking likes and followers for quality is a mistake. I think that sometimes you need to dig a little deeper than what you're getting in your discover page because of the, the people who have the most followers or the people who have the most likes on their pictures are getting the most attention but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best photographers. So some of the photographers I follow in my Instagram feed are people who don't have a big following, but they're just really, really good. So you have to kind of find what your style and what you're attracted to and what you want to be inspired by, because if you're just going to follow the top 50 accounts that come up on your Instagram feed, you're going to get the same pictures over and over again, and you're not going to grow as an artist, because part of the growth process as a photographer or any artist is finding new inspiration and things that you know really kind of spur your imagination to try new things to look at a new lighting technique or find a propping style that you like you have to dig a little deeper mhm mm really quickly you speak about captioning correctly you know how do we title our photographs and playing with words is something that i love doing do you have any quick tips on that well, I mean, as far as crediting, first, anybody who is involved in creating your pictures, you should always credit them because mm -hmm. really, that's a really good practice. But then in terms of captioning itself, if, you're not, if it's obvious what's there in front of you and you want to think of something clever or fun to write, I think you should be, feel free to do that. I mean, I don't think we need to be literal all the time with our captioning. Like, this is a burger, and yes, we know it's a burger. <laughs> I think that's a part of it is to be engaging and fun and clever and witty and, and, you know, play with words. Sometimes I would caption with song lyrics. Sometimes I would caption with poetry. It's just it's a matter of what mood you're in. And then if you want to be playful, be playful. If you want to be serious, be serious. But don't be surprised when everybody's comments are, yum, and where is the recipe? Because I, I think if I had a dollar for every time I got yum or where is the recipe, I, I wouldn't have to work anymore. Yeah. Well, I have got to tell you, your book is absolutely beautiful, and we've got to close. Our time just evaporated, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Helmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Andrew Scrivani. He is the author of a fantastic book for anyone who loves food and photographing it. 
titled That Photo Makes Me Hungry, Photographing Food for Fun and Profit. And I want to take you to his website. I will provide that. It's simply www.andrewscrivani.com. And thank you so much for this beautiful book and for being my guest. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very happy you like the book. And uh, one piece of advice, don't read it before lunch. (laughs) Great. Thank you. (laughs) 